All right, I couldn't find my water for a minute. That was a that would have been devastating. All right, um, but I did find it. And also, you'll be glad to know that the iPad is now fully charged. Uh, I set it to charge last night. It didn't charge overnight, so I woke up this morning. It only had a little bit of juice, and um, that would have been, let me just say, if the iPad had gone dark during the sermon, that would have been so exciting. Uh, it could have gotten wild. So anyway, so uh, you'll be comforted to know that it's not going to get wild in here because the iPad has plenty of juice, and so we'll be fine. No, I'm, I'm not sure. Anyway, I'm glad to know this charge. Okay, so uh, fake news. Our sermon series is continuing entitled Fake News. This is part four. I'm getting a little bit of, uh, little bit of feedback here, if we could maybe uh, handle that. Okay, so fake news, part four. We started out a few weeks ago. Uh, with this study series, and the idea is that there are some ideas, <laughs> the idea is that there are some ideas that are out there, um, whether widely held in the, you know, broader society around us or within the church, um, that are commonly held um, and commonly relied upon as reliable or as true, uh, and yet we're taking some time to go, okay, yeah, but is, are, those, are these ideas really true? And you can tell by the study series, we're picking on these ideas that um, actually I'm maintaining and making my case to you that these are, in fact, fake news. And we get this kind of enterprise um, from the Apostle Paul himself. Here's kind of our theme verse for this series, 2 Corinthians uh, 10. The Apostle Paul writing to the ancient church at Corinth, he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not merely human but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We, he says, we destroy arguments in every proud obstacle raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive uh, to obey Christ. And so here is a verse, and we've said this um, previously in this study series. This is one of the verses uh, where we draw from Paul this body of writing from which we get the phrase spiritual warfare. He is talking about ultimately what, we, what could be called spiritual warfare. He begins, um, you know, this warfare is not human, but divine power to, do, to destroy strongholds. So there is a spiritual element to this. And yet, as he continues the thought, he's talking about destroying arguments. What's that? Well, that's intellectual. So, um, so we might say that for Paul, there, you know, where for us there might be this, this chasm, this divide between the spiritual and the intellectual, which would be human, um, or maybe not spiritual. But for Paul, it's like this seamless connection. Um, so spiritual warfare and intellectual warfare um, are connected. And so we are working on some of these arguments, as he described it, some of these um, ideas that are raised up that actually prevent folks like us um, from knowing God, from knowing not only who God really is, but, but that idea of, of an intimate knowledge and experiential knowledge of God. So that's our framework. Here we go. Fake news item for today. Here it is. Are you ready? Fake news item. The Bible overrules Jesus. It's fake news. Don't you believe it? Now, uh, I have to say, this fake news item is fake news in a different way than some of the uh, other installments in this series. Um, and I have to say, uh, to be fair, no one ever says that. No one ever says it that way, right? It, no one ever comes up and says, well, you know, Jesus might have said, but the Bible says. And I mean, nobody's that overt, right? And yet, uh, 
I insist that somewhere between the lines or somewhere in the atmosphere, um, many folks um, have picked up a, a, a way of thinking that, in fact, is accurately characterized by a statement something like uh, the Bible can and does, at least from time to time, overrule Jesus. To which you might respond, well, how do you know that, Kenyon? Why do you, why do you say that? And I'll tell you why I say that. It's because of, in my life, there is this pattern, almost a loop of conversations with people. And, and, it, and it, goes, it goes something like this. You know, because I'm, I'm like constantly, constantly saying in one way or another, God is good. God is really good. God is better than you can imagine, better than you've ever dreamed. You are loved. You are included. Uh, you have nothing to prove. Just as you are, you belong. You're held by God. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly um, trying, at least my best, to say that over and over and over again. And simultaneously, I have, and you know, I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant to talk about it overtly this way because I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea. I love this. But simultaneously, I have this string of individual conversations with people, more or less private conversations through text message, email, a stand-up conversation here or there, a phone call. And and these conversations follow a basic pattern. Yes, I hear you saying that God is good, God is gracious, God's there's a wideness in God's I hear you all saying that, but and then what comes after the but, and I can tell you one hundred percent of the time, what comes after the but is some Bible verse. I know, I know that God is good. I hear what you're saying, but the Bible says da 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 da, da. and what follows is a Bible verse that is in effect, in a, in a cognitive effect, in an emotional effect, in, an in, a, in the affected imagination, some Bible verse that mitigates or limits or bounds the goodness, the graciousness, the bigness, the wideness of God's embrace, inclusion, etc. Right? And so, because that pattern in my life, it's like I'm constantly going, God is good, you belong, you're concluded, it's, you, don't have nothing, you have nothing to prove. I'm constantly saying that, and then I'm constantly getting individual feedback going, yes, I hear that, but the Bible says, da 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 Because I, that's my observation, that's my experience, I know that this fake news item is out there in the ether. That the Bible has been given, or had, at least in some folks' mind, has permission to uh, overrule Jesus. Now, again, nobody would say it that way, but I'm telling you, and, and maybe it's just a sermon title. I, you know, it's like if I could give the sermon a title this long, this would be the title of the sermon, right? So, okay. Um, so, we need to ask, you know, why is it? Like, there has to be, isn't there some reason that so many people would actually be experiencing this sticking point, right? Like, is it just, are people just imagining that the Bible says things that counter, uh, counter what, who, who Jesus is and what Jesus says and does and lives and teaches? Uh, 
And the answer is no. We're, that's, nobody's making that up. Like there is a reason for the sticking point. Like there really is material in the Bible as a whole that would at least seem to set up this mm, tension, this conflict, I'll say it. And so what I want to do here, and, and I, I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to elaborate on these fragments of Scripture. I'm just going to go through, through these really quickly, but I'm giving you this as my answer of saying, of course, of course there's a reason that so many people have this sticking point. Of course there's a reason that so many people would see and feel and um, uh, vibe somehow, some way, that in fact there is conflict between, um, between the ministry message announcement embodiment of Christ and at least certain fragments within our sacred texts. Of course. Here it is. What about the question of killing? Ecclesiastes 3 says, For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven, dot, 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 there is a time to kill. What about Jeremiah 12? It, uh, but if any nation will not listen, then I will completely uproot it and destroy it, says the Lord. What does Jesus say, John 10? The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they, that you, that we, may have life and have it abundantly. What about the question of enemies? What is our posture toward enemies? Psalm 54, you will help me, Lord God, and keep me from falling. You will punish my enemies for their evil deeds. Be my faithful friend and destroy them. How do I know that God is my friend? Because he destroys my enemies. What about Jesus on enemies? I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. What we're doing right now, this is all setting up the stage for our study this morning. And I'm thinking right now, like when I was six years old, when I had those little race cars that were wind up to let them go, and you would, you would pull it backwards to wind it up so that you let it go, right? So what we're doing right now is we're winding up the race car. Right now, we're winding up the race car to let this baby go, okay? So are you feeling the tension? All right. What about the question of retaliation? Or retribution, the less familiar way of saying the same thing, perhaps. Leviticus 24, and you know this. Anyone who maims another shall suffer the same injury in return. Fracture for fracture. We're talking broken bones here. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The injury inflicted is the injury to be suffered, says Moses. What about Jesus on this very issue? Well, Jesus just... Raises the challenge flatly. He says in Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. That's pretty blunt. Okay, so what about the question of authority? Um, and here, 
uh, I rely, in order to create the point-counterpoint, I rely not upon uh, a passage of Scripture, and there's a reason for that, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, here I rely upon uh, what I would characterize as kind of the rhetoric that's in the atmosphere, at least in evangelical Christian circles. You hear often phrases like the authority of the Bible or the authority of Scripture. You hear that rhetoric a lot, right? Like in, in our circles, uh, hear it, see it, read it, whatever. Uh, but look at what Jesus said. Matthew 28. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There's a reason that I don't have a verse of scripture to rely upon in establishing this particular count, point, counterpoint, uh, point, counterpoint. I rely upon only the rhetoric within evangelical Christian circles because the Bible itself doesn't give authority to the Bible itself. The Bible itself gives authority to Jesus. And there you have my entire sermon. <laughs> but I'm going to keep talking anyway. Uh, so, so Jesus says, and I love this, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, not, as N.T. Wright says, not to the books you chaps are going to write. <laughs> oh, that's so, nobody appreciated that, didn't they? Okay. All right. I get it. So the point of all that is to say, yes, of course. There is plenty of reason uh, to explain this fairly common sticking point for many believers. God is good. God is gracious. There's a wideness in God's love. You're included. You belong. You have nothing to prove, you know, whatever. Yeah, I hear that, Pastor, but the Bible says, right, and then some statement that sort of limits or mitigates or counterpoints all that. There's a reason for all that, um, the tensions are present. And so, all that said, to raise now in the affirmative, how do we respond to this? How do we handle this? How do we resolve all of this? How do we get unstuck? Right? Like, I describe this as a loop in terms of my experience, reality, conversations with others. But now I'm thinking about, like, for those of, for those, those of us, who might actually be in that loop in and of ourselves, right? How do we get unstuck? And, and that's what I want to do um, this morning. And I want to I try to show how others, and these are our others, our fathers and mothers in the faith, have dealt with this. And um, my hope, my aim, my intent, is that um, we will willingly and intentionally inherit from our fathers and mothers in the faith who have blazed these trails for us, right? So, first of all, what does the early church say about this particular tension, let's call it? And here... Um, we go to one of the stories, experiences, um, vignettes contained in the gospel records themselves. And this is the story of the what's called commonly the transfiguration, the transfiguration of Christ. Uh, this account is included in all three synoptic gospels, um, Matthew, Mark, 
and Luke. And John makes the same point in his own way, theologically, um, without necessarily telling us of the, the moment of this occasion of the transfiguration. But John makes the same point really over and over in his gospel. We have it here from Matthew. Let me read it. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 17. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three dwellings here, tents, tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. We got the big three, the triplets right here. We'll make tabernacles to memorialize this moment, this time, this spot. While he was still speaking, that's Peter, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, this is my son, the beloved. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them and said, get up and don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Uh, this is, all at once, uh, a wild story, right? It's mystical, it's spiritual. Christ is transformed into some, you know, glowing looking, you know, just a, a, a you know, a, this dazzling, majestic transfiguration of Christ. It includes that. And then there's this other element in this moment. Here's Moses. And here's Elijah talking with Jesus. It is stunning. Um, there's a lot going on in this story. Moses, of course, is, you know, he is in the history of Israel. He's the, the figure who leads the charge to liberate um, the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery. Um, and I think of equal significance, Moses then becomes the, the prophet who gives to Israel the law, the what we call the Pentateuch. Um, but he gives Israel the law. And so Moses, over time, becomes um, more than Moses, right? Like Moses is more than the, the lifespan and deeds of Moses for the for the, for, the, for the heart and soul of Israel, Moses is synonymous with the law, with the sacred texts given to Israel through Moses. And then you have Elijah. We could say the same thing about Elijah. There is Elijah, the person, the prophet, from his birth to his death, his deeds, and so on. But by the, in the same way, Elijah is not only a historical person, for Israel, Elijah is a symbol. Elijah symbolizes the prophets. And so in Moses and Elijah, you have these two larger-than-life figures who are, you know, 
historical people and yet also simultaneously symbolize the law and the prophets. Moses symbolizes the law. Elijah symbolizes the prophets. These are the human symbols of the sacred texts given to Israel through Moses, through Elijah. What was the purpose of the law? Well, the purpose of the law, I guess in summary, was to form Israel into a worshiping and just society. And I here I'm thinking of really what might be, you know, the, the nuclear core of the law, what we call the Ten Commandments, right? You have these Ten Commandments, and they're, and they're split roughly equally, not quite, but roughly equally upon right, right, being rightly related to God, love, you know, uh, uh, have no other gods before me, don't make any idols, etc., right worship toward God. And then uh, the other half, give or take, of the Ten Commandments being related, we might say, to being rightly related to one another, right? Don't steal, don't covet, etc. So, so to, to, to simplify, the Ten Commandments as the core of the law have as their aim, their mission, their mandate to form Israel into a worshiping and just society, rightly related to God and rightly related to one another. And then, of course, the prophets come along and, and couple together with that, um, urging Israel again and again and again to get it right. <laughs> this is who we're, the, the prophets aren't necessarily arguing with the intent, the mission, the mandate of the law. What they're doing is arguing with the people of Israel to get with the program, which is why, again, uh, to, to summarize, basically the, the prophets of Israel um, they called out the people of Israel for really only two basic categories. Uh, and and the, the, word for, the word for the prophets um, for correcting um, uh, uh, worship that's gone out of whack is idolatry. When the prophets rail against idolatry, what they're really saying is, your worship life has gotten out of whack, and so I'm calling you back to uh, right relatedness to God. Uh, and then injustice. So the basic two basic themes of the prophets are idolatry and injustice. What's that? Idolatry is about being rightly related to God. Injustice is about being rightly or wrongly related to one another and to the world around us. This is the point of the law and the prophets together as sacred written text. They had a divinely issued mission and mandate to form Israel into a worshiping and just society. And then comes Jesus. What is the mission and mandate of Jesus? Well, we could answer that in a number of ways, of course, but let's stick for our purposes. Let's stick with Jesus' own most frequent way of explaining his own mission, and that is the kingdom of God. It's a phrase constantly on the lips of of Jesus. The kingdom of God has, has arrived. The kingdom of God is breaking in. The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is like this. It's like that. I mean, over and over and over again, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. Well, what is the kingdom of God? Well, here's, here's a way to say it. The kingdom of God is this new world order in which all of humanity is 
rightly related to God and rightly related to one another. The kingdom of God is a world reimagined around the worship of God and justice toward one another. This story, everybody, the story of the transfiguration, this story has a point. This mystical experience is carrying some cargo. And the point of this story is encapsulated in that moment within all of that mystical wonder. And Peter is reacting as best he knows how. Let's memorialize this moment, etc. And then the voice speaks, this is my son in whom I'm pleased. Listen to him. This is the moment where the, the heartbeat of God, the eternal mission of God from Genesis 3 on <laughs> is handed to Jesus. It is Jesus who has been entrusted with the ongoing and eternal mission of God to form not just Israel, but to form the world into a new society rightly related to God and rightly related to one another. There's a reason why this story is told and retold and retold in all three of the what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's because this is the early church telling us, telling one another, telling themselves, tell, this is the church telling the church, right, where the mandate is now found. Where, where is it? Where do we locate the voice of God? Where do we locate now the call of God? Where do we locate the mission and mandate and who God is and what is? Where do we locate what it is that God has to say to the world? This is, this is our ancestors in the faith telling us where they locate what God has to say. They locate what God has to say to the world in Jesus. This is what this story is saying to us. It has a point. It's carrying cargo. Listen to him. Moses is there. Elijah is there. We have the law. We have the prophets. And the voice says, listen to Jesus. Is everybody tracking? So, uh, so, 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 so here's it. Okay, now. Uh, two really fun examples of how Jesus himself read the Bible. And I've already given you a couple. When I mean, when Jesus stands up in the Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of his, like his greatest hit sermon, and says, you've heard it said, and he quotes Moses, but I say to you. I mean, that's, those examples fall in the same category of what I'm fixing to do. But I want to talk about two examples of uh, Jesus' own um, uh, surprising way of reading the Bible that may not be quite as obvious as those two examples given in the Sermon on the Mount where he directly sort of goes point-counterpoint with Moses. Um, and the first one is in Luke chapter 9. And so let's just dive into this and, and, uh, and just kind of see how we can... Um, unpack it. 
beginning with verse 51. Uh, now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. I love that. That's from the New King James Version. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they, the Samaritans, didn't receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, the failure of the Samaritans to accept Jesus, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, uh, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Now, you can later on, you can go and read the story, 2 Kings chapter 1. Uh, but you, you need to know that James and John, when they suggested to Jesus that, you know, let's call down fire and have these, you know, sorry dog Samaritans consumed and burned up, you know. Uh, James and John were not just making stuff up. James and John were drawing from the Bible. They know the story in 2 Kings chapter 1 where the king of Samaria uh, is having some health problems, you know. Uh, he consults uh, uh, Beelzebub is unable to get some help, and so he sends some of his soldiers, his emissaries, uh, to the, the prophet um, Elijah, Elijah the Tishbite, sends his messengers to Elijah uh, to bring Elijah to himself, to the king, to get some answers from God and ultimately to get, you know, to recover his physical health. And Elijah calls down fire from heaven and has a, a, a garrison of 50 soldiers, let's say, consumed. So the king of Samaria sends 50 more. Elijah calls down the fire. They're burned up. And finally, you know, the last group goes and they get on their knees before Elijah. said, please don't destroy us. You know, will you just go? So Elijah agrees to go. So, you know, that's the story in 2 Kings 1. And so James and John are just, with Jesus, the Bible says that when the Samaritans do Samaritan nonsense to us Israelites, we do like Elijah. We call down fire uh, and have them destroyed. That's, that's what we do. That's what, the, that's what Elijah did. And so surely in this moment, while the Samaritans are being nasty to us, closing their doors, you know, and failing to accept us, surely because the Bible says we're going to do what Elijah did. And look what Jesus says. He doesn't just say no. It says he rebuked them. And then I love it from the New King James Version, you do not know what spirit you are of. I'm telling you, people, this is stunning. I mean, to, if, if James and John, if James and John were good old card-carrying evangelicals, they would go, no, you hold up, Mr. Messiah, man. I got a Bible verse. But no, Jesus said, no, 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 no. 
you're just, you're just tracking in the wrong spirit. You're just tracking in the wrong spirit. It's stunning. So this example, again, it, this is more subtle. It's less obvious, but it falls, honestly, in the same category of the two sort of headline examples that we have from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus directly and bluntly and overtly says, you've heard it said, but I say. This is the same idea. Jesus, Jesus read the Bible in a particular way. Uh, here's another one. Again, maybe equally as subtle, but also equally as mm, scandalous. Uh, Luke 4. We'll just read it. See what we make of it. When he came to Nazareth, this is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So Jesus goes to church. As was his custom, uh, he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So Jesus unrolls the scroll, and he goes near the back end of it, and he finds a place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, you would think that when a sermon begins like that, everybody is fixing to have a great day in church. Right? You would think when the sermon begins like that, hey, everybody, I've got good news of the Lord's favor, sight to the blind, release to the oppressed. I mean, you would think that is the launch point for somebody, for some people having church, right? We got a lot to celebrate, goodness of God, etc. But for some reason, this particular sermon does not inspire that kind of joyful acceptance and response from the gathered congregation. In fact, the response of the gathered congregation uh, is exactly the opposite. Surprisingly, after this launch point for the sermon, this particular Saturday church service in the synagogue ends up with an outraged congregation ready to throw the preacher off of a cliff. Now, how in the world did we get from good news to the poor, release from prison, the year of the Lord's favor, how did we get from that to an outraged congregation ready to throw the preacher off a cliff? Well, let's see if we can discover the answer. And once again, the theme is Jesus read the Bible differently than did his contemporaries. In the beginning of this sermon, Jesus, as it says, is quoting the prophet Isaiah. Almost. Let's read it from Isaiah 61. This is the source where Jesus was reading from, which is really exciting to think about, right? Somebody handed him the scroll, he lays it out, he unrolls it. Oh, here's chapter 61. I love that. No, there's no chapter version, but he, he finds it. He finds this section from uh, Isaiah. And here it is from Isaiah 61. See if you can notice any difference. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance to our God. Wait, what? Did anybody notice that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, Jesus left off that last phrase from Isaiah's ancient prophetic announcement. Jesus left off that part from Isaiah where Isaiah says, oh, yeah, 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 and this is the day of the vengeance of God. Jesus left that part out, and guess what? That happens to have been the Israelites' very favorite part of the whole prophecy. Now, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. I mean, Israel had been for its history, except for maybe we could say the brief segment of time with David and and Solomon. Outside of that, Israel had been stepped on by the surrounding nations. They had been underpowered, overruled. Some other empire has had its boot on the neck of Israel throughout their entire history, except, again, except for that one sort of span there. Um, And so I think we can be sympathetic with a group of people who were stepped on, overlooked, exploited, oppressed, etc. for generation after generation after generation. We can understand why they would peel through Isaiah and go, oh yeah, <laughs> there's that day of God's vengeance that's coming, right? So, so but, 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 and Jesus knows all that. He's a part of his own culture. And yet when he reads this prophecy from Isaiah, he edits that part. And people are furious at him for it. Now, how do we know, how do we know that this is an accurate interpretation of what goes on on this Saturday Sabbath that turns into an attempted, uh, you know, throwing the preacher off the cliff? We know because of the rest, the way the rest of the sermon goes. Let's, let's go back to Luke 4, beginning with verse 25. Jesus, this is Jesus talking. He says, the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine all over the land, yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. What's, what's he saying? He's saying to the gathered people in the synagogue that day, listen, our own, in our own stories, in our own uh, prophetic witness, we see the the overflowing mercy of God to those outside of Israel, toward the nations. So Jesus is, in effect, preaching the sermon to validate why it is that he's edited Isaiah. He goes on. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian, not even an Israelite. And when they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. Why? Because all they could think about was God making Israel great again. And Jesus is telling them, listen, this God of ours, his mercy is for all the nations. His mercy is for all ethnicities. It is for all people. And the people are furious with Jesus. When When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. 
And you know, I mean, that was true then a couple thousand years ago, but isn't it true today that some people, if you, if you, take, their, if you take the anger out of their face, some people don't have much of anything left. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's, he is drawing that, that um, the stinger of exclusivity. He's drawing it out of their face. And they're mad about it. And so Jesus edits Isaiah, and it's not accidental. It's on purpose. Because Jesus reads the Bible differently. And it happens again and again and again. Um, I think more to the point, this is, on, this is on the sheet that's floating around out there somewhere, which has the notes for all this. But John chapter 5, I said before that John makes the same point um, in his own way. And here's one example of that. John chapter 5, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. The scriptures point to me. Now, um, I want to keep sort of, I guess maybe I'm thinking this is kind of like chronologically. So, so we started with the witness of, of the early church and how they handled this tension. And then we looked a little bit at Jesus himself. Um, and now I want to talk um, about the Apostle Paul. And I want to kind of use as our anchor point, maybe a surprising um, portion of one of Paul's speeches and then try to make my case for it. Um, Acts 20, the Apostle Paul says something I think is extraordinary. He says, um, I don't count my life of any value to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the good news of God's grace. Good news of God's grace. Now, we have only a handful of places in the writing of the New Testament, including Paul's own writing, in this case, the writing of Luke, giving to us um, a speech from the Apostle Paul. We only have a handful of places where Paul himself defines the gospel, good news. We have 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel that I gave to you. Um, Christ was crucified, he was buried, rose, that whole formula. Not, not formula, it's a story, he's telling the story. But here is another example where it's even more abbreviated. The gospel of God's grace. Now this is, I think, it's really an extraordinary opportunity for us to try to enter into the heart of the Apostle Paul. He says, my life's mission is to testify. The Greek word there, uh, to attest to, it could even be to protest. <laughs> um, I want to testify to the good news of God's grace. Okay. Let's consider this for a bit. This is Paul. We first meet him, Saul of Tarsus. He's a Pharisee, trained up by 
the Hall of Fame Pharisee Gamaliel. Paul is a God guy and has been for his entire life. Um, Paul knows the Bible. Um, He knows the verses. And then one day, Saul of Tarsus has this encounter that changes everything for him. In in many ways, that's what the book of Acts is all about. Um, And from that moment, for the rest of his life, Paul devoted himself to the mission of announcing this message to the world. And here, he describes his message in a particular way that I think is highly instructive for our purposes today. He describes his message as good news of God's grace. Grace. What are we talking about? Well, the the root of the word grace is gift. God's giving. God's generosity. Is this This 